0: Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to amazing women who are making a real difference. With these podcasts, you're going to hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges that people have had to overcome, how their backgrounds helped to shape who they are today and sometimes more importantly, how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. Joining me today is Molly Haney Bailey, a senior executive with TransPlace, which is a leading provider of transportation management services and logistics technology. And you're about to hear a real treat. Molly's got an incredible journey, which includes volunteering for the Peace Corps, where she helped villagers in a small town in Africa create sustainable ecosystems, to all sorts of different roles in in logistics, to running international operations for a leading transportation company. So without further ado, let's welcome Molly. Molly, thank you for joining the show. Hey Linda, good afternoon, thank you for having me. It's a treat, you do have an amazing journey and I know our listeners love to hear that. So why don't we dive right in and why don't you tell us a little bit more about just how you started your professional journey, like where you grew up and where you went to school.
1: Sure, absolutely. So I grew up in western PA, uh, about an hour southwest of Pittsburgh, going towards the corner of West Virginia and Ohio. Grew up during the 70s and 80s, which was certainly not the the best economic times for, for the country and certainly for the Pittsburgh area, which was still kind of grappling with what its new version of life was going to be after the, the collapse of the the steel mills and the iron mills. And my father was a, a car dealer. He owned a dealership, sold General Motors products. So that was also when a lot of foreign manufacturer, foreign automobile manufacturers were coming into the U S marketplace with much more affordable vehicles. So I, I definitely grew up getting a perspective of, the balance and the challenge of dealing with the geo-global economic impacts on how selling U.S. cars compared to people wanting to buy alternative sources and watching the coal miner strike for you know wages and benefits and high unemployment levels and it was it was an interesting time, maybe similar to to the times that you know my kids who are who are in high school or are experiencing right now with with coronavirus and this period being incomparable to anything else that that they've seen prior. so definitely feel like it 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 shaped my my overall outlook and you know willingness to to explore outside of, of the area I grew up in.
0: I bet. I bet. I mean, you really were a firsthand witness to, you know, a lot of poverty and devastation, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're one of four children, right?
1: That's correct. I'm the youngest daughter. I have three older brothers. Um, we're all scattered throughout the country now and doing different different jobs. But we, you know, we all
0: try to get together as often as we can. And so growing up, I know you you told me there was a lot of camping and certainly a lot of outdoorsy types of activities that helped shape your volunteer work later on.
1: Oh, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I my brothers, if I was going to hang with them, then I couldn't pull the girl card. You know, I had to, <laughs> to be willing to hang with them and keep up with them and not complain and, you know, just, just be part of the troop. And so we still laugh at some of the things that they made me do. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's funny when I entered, uh, later on, entered transportation very much you know, still to this day, but really 20 years ago, very male dominated business. And, you know, I've always felt comfortable in that environment, just probably because I grew up in a household of boys. So,
0: you know, it was something I was used to, for sure. Yeah. And then, so when you went away to school, what made you go to, uh, I mean, you you went pretty far at University of Colorado, correct?
1: I did. Yeah. You know, it, my mom, I think because I was the fourth child, by the time I got to high school and my, the, the brother closest to me had already gone off to college, I think she was burned out on being a parent. So she, <laughs> imagine that, right? She talked, she talked my uncle who was living out in Colorado into, hey, don't you want Molly to come out for the summer and hang with you? And, and he lived in Steamboat Springs, which is a pretty spectacular place to, you know, spend the summer. So I went and stayed with my my uncle for a couple summers, worked as a maid at a Super 8 and did did various, you know, just just hourly summer jobs, but loved Colorado. I loved to ski, so ended up attending college at the University of Colorado and then I I also had the opportunity CU had an exchange program with a French university, the University de Bordeaux in Bordeaux, France, it was a great program because sometimes with the with the exchange programs that if you go through another college, you wouldn't get all the credits back, and you might have to you know do additional time. But with with CU in Bordeaux, I spent my junior year in Bordeaux learning at the university and got full course credits like I would have if I would have stayed at CU, and it was just an amazing. Bordeaux's beautiful. You're in the heart of French wine country, you know, go out on day trips to visit vineyards. And so that that was a really neat opportunity and allowed me to to learn French really well. Although don't don't ask me to speak in long French phrases at this
0: point. It's been too long. <laughs> You'll have to go back to the Bordeaux country,
1: <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly, which I'm happily willing to do. <laughs> so, so you went from here. So tell me, I'm, I'm curious to know how you went from here to the Peace Corps.
1: Yeah, so, you know, gosh, this was, I graduated from college in 1990. And if you'll recall, 1990 was not a great time, you know, still, you know, a difficult economic time. I mean, gosh, I remember coming out of college in 90 and people were, couldn't even find unpaid internships, you know, like that's how competitive the job market was. There was high unemployment. It was just a really challenging time to to get a job. And I, I think I recognized pretty early on that I just I wasn't ready to begin, you know, the nine to five office grind that I just I, I wanted to go out and see the world. And the idea of the Peace Corps and going someplace that I never would would normally go, you know, even just in recreational travel was really appealing to me. I like the idea of the volunteerism and helping others. So I applied and it's, I can't speak to it now, but at the time it's a pretty long application process. So I I think I applied, you know, the Peace Corps comes to colleges and, and recruits people to become volunteers. And so I if I recall the timing, I think I applied for the Peace Corps right after college, and it took almost nine months to go through the application process. You know, you had to go through a background check. You had to go, you know, go through several interviews. They, obviously, they want to make sure that people are going in for the right reasons. And so I did work a little bit after college, but then when I, I found out I had been accepted originally to go to Zaire, in Africa, I was thrilled. And so off I went. It's pretty amazing. You were
0: 23 years old.
1: I was younger than that. I think I was 22. It was, I was crazy young.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I I, I can't imagine, although it sounds like growing up in a coal mining area that really prepared you for this.
1: Yeah. You know, I think I was too dumb to know the, you know, the risks that I was potentially facing. And I look back and now as a mom to kids, and if my kids came to me and said, Hey, I'm headed off to africa and there aren't really phones and you know at the time there were no cell phones there was no computers no internet i think i would you know if my kids told me that i think i'd try to figure out a way to talk them out of it but thankfully you know my parents were always super supportive and definitely recognized it was a great opportunity so so i i marched off optimistically to to go conquer the world i guess
0: i love it i love it So, so you ended up in africa tell us more
1: yeah, so I ended up in—originally I was in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But, but when I started my stint in there, it was Zaire. Zaire is, gosh, one of the largest countries on the continent of Africa. I think it's similar to the size of the U.S. east of the Mississippi. So it's a massive country. At the time, it was referred to as Fourth World. I mean, just extremely poor, extremely corrupt— very limited infrastructure, I mean the roads were terrible. The m- most valuable part of Zaire is that it's just mineral rich so so there were mining companies that you know were were running operations. but as far as you know just overall development of the the country, it wasn't really happening the The dictator mabutu was was in charge at the time and he was pretty ruthless. And so it was just, it was, you know, going from, from the U.S. To, to that environment was, it was a trip. I mean, it was totally different than life as we're accustomed to here in the U.S. in the early 90s.
0: I bet. I bet. And and so you were working with people that were literally living in mud huts?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, the the Zaire dollar, the currency was pretty much completely worthless. People, you know, the the shops would, all the pricing was in chalk and had just rampant inflation. So it was really a barter society, which was pretty fascinating. So, you know, we, in the Peace Corps, you get paid a stipend, you know, the villages that host you provide your housing, but you need to get a small stipend to buy, you know, your food and clothing and pots and pans and things that you might need. And, we would because inflation was so bad we would literally we would get paid and then run and buy like rice and sugar and soap and things that you could barter and and you know get equal provisions for because if you just held on to your cash within a couple of days that might get you you know maybe a cup of sugar and that's it so it, oh was, it was yeah
0: yeah it was crazy how did your of the Peace Corps work? You were working with farmers, you said, to promote animal husbandry?
1: So it was actually integrated agriculture program. So the goal of the program was to assist African villagers and farmers in having more diverse food sources throughout the year. In Africa, you've got a dry season and, and a rainy season. And, and so things are plentiful in the rainy season. Obviously, it's easy to grow crops and, you know, there's always food around. But during the dry season, you know, there there's lots of nutritional impacts and, you know, people don't have enough to eat or they have very limited things to eat. So they're not getting a lot of the required nutrients. At the time I was there, you know, gosh, I remember my mom talking about her grandmother's generation in the U.S. and people having goiters because there wasn't enough iodine in in food. And that was very much an issue in Africa when I was there because they eat a root called manioc or cassava during the dry season, because that's something that's readily able to grow it and harvest it in the rainy season. And then you can eat on it year round. But if you don't properly allow it enough time to soak and soak out the bad stuff, then it can lead to people having goiters and, and other nutritional challenges. And so essentially we went in as integrated agricultural volunteers and pitched to farmers to develop fish farming. So dam creeks and form ponds and raise tilapia, because tilapia is a super hardy fish that, that you know, can pretty much exist anywhere with, with a water source. Um, So we were raising tilapia, we were planting agricultural crops, all kinds of varied, different greens and and other vegetables around the ponds. And then we also had some really inventive farmers that would raise pigs and other types of rabbits and and other small husbandry animals over the ponds. And so essentially you create this self-sustaining ecosystem where, you know, you're you're feeding the, the animals, the leftover, you know, the spoiled stuff that you're growing from the crops, you know, their waste into the pond. The fish is eating that, and then people are eating the fish and, you know, throwing, the, using the bones and leftover fish to be a source of organic material for the crop. So that there was this whole ongoing ecosystem that we were trying to promote and continue to get people to adopt and, and follow that
0: methodology. That's incredible. That really is incredible. So how, how long were you there for? It? So unfortunately, because of things outside of, of our control, I was
1: there about a year. But then there were there were riots in the capital. Mabutu ended up getting kicked out. He stopped paying certain parts of the military. There was a coup. He got kicked out. But ultimately, the Peace Corps at that time decided it was it was too dangerous to leave us where we were. So ended up evacuated the volunteers. I came back to the States for a short period of time and then went back to the Central African Republic, which is a neighboring country near near Zaire and just that part of Africa, and served there an additional year or so. Doing agriculture, again, not, not an integrated agriculture because unfortunately in, in the, the parts of the CAR I was in, they didn't have enough of the 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 creeks and so forth to create the fish ponds of of where i was in africa that worked really well but still working with farmers helping them you know continue to plant new types of products to to push that very nutrition that was so critical for the health of of their
0: families and the villages they lived in so what was your big takeaway when you think about the time that you spent there over the two years
1: i think a couple things one it was really interesting. I, I felt almost genderless when I was in Africa because as, as a foreign woman, you're separate from the the local African women. You're almost treated more equally as a, as a man, but yet you're not a man. So you're kind of in this weird, you know, you have your own kind of status, which was really interesting. I think that, you know, I was always always so impressed and just felt so welcomed and safe with the communities that I lived with in Africa you know I've always had people say like well weren't you scared you were so far from home I mean yeah of course it's, it's scary when you're on the plane going over there but once I settled into the communities I I lived with I felt like those they were family and they would have, you know, if I would have gotten malaria or I would have gotten dysentery or anything, they they would have done anything they could to help me and take care of me. And I felt like such a member of that community. That was really neat. And I, I just was impressed with their optimism and just, you know, these are extremely poor people living in mud huts and family members dying from malaria and dying from all different kinds of diseases. And, you know, I mean, the lifespan of a person in Zaire or Central African Republic is much, or it was at the time, much shorter than what we have here in the U.S. But they just, they were always so optimistic and appreciative of their life. and, And they had so little. And I think, you know, sometimes in the US, you know, we, we get caught up with so many materialistic things and wanting, you know, a better car or a bigger house or this or that. And that just they were just happy to be alive and breathing and, you know, out and about. And and so it just it really gave me such a such a
0: perspective. That's amazing. I mean look the perspective like that really shows you how valuable life is and, and everything that we take advantage of. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Even you know with what we're doing now where I, I think we're all dealing with now with the, with COVID and it can, you know, you guys are in New York. I'm sure it's, it's been even tougher on, on you, but, you know, I, 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 at times when I feel like, gosh, I just wanted to go back to the way it was before this all hit, you know what? It, unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. And you have to, you have to march forward and you have to be thankful for what you have and be appreciative. And, and I, I think a lot of that, I think I learned it growing up, but I think it was reinforced in Africa for sure.
0: And it also prepared you. I mean, here you were involved very much in, in the early stages of supply chains. So here it kind of led you into, you know, what you are have today, which is a very successful career in logistics. You want to tell us a little bit more there about how you got into the business and what led you to TransPlace?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's it's funny because I I graduated from college with a degree in international affairs, which I would call, you know, basically international political science, very much a liberal arts degree. I, I I have a son right now who's a junior in high school and he's trying to figure out what he wants to study. And I keep telling him, don't get so hung up on that, you know. One, make sure you go to a college that you want to go to and that you're going to enjoy. And whatever program you study, don't study it just because you think it's going to get you X job out of college. Study it because it's something that interests you. Don't do something just because you think the result is going to get you $60,000 a year or whatever you you think you want (laughs) to make. I mean, that again, that's my opinion. So, coming out of college, although I had a, you know, I feel like I didn't learn a lot, I wasn't coming out as a nurse. I wasn't coming out as an architect or an engineer and had a career, you know, a straightforward career path. And then I went to Africa for essentially three years. And so, when I got back in, you know, 93, 94, again, the job situation still wasn't great. It was starting to improve. And this was back before Monster and all the online stuff. So, literally looking in the paper for jobs and I, I was back home in pittsburgh and found a company called dxi that filed had received the contract from the federal maritime commission to take all the ocean paper tariffs that the ocean carriers used to file with the fnc and make them electronic. And so that's really how I got into this world. I'm, I'm always amazed, you know, like here in Texas, we have the University of North Texas, which has a logistics degree. I think UT Dallas has a supply chain degree, Tennessee, Penn State all have, you know, big, big logistics and supply chain degrees. And I'm I'm amazed I meet people that that have gone to school for this because, because I didn't. I had no clue what I was getting into. <laughs> they didn't exist,
0: these programs, when we were going to school.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so totally fell into it. At the time, you know, DSI at the time was very much an IT company. I didn't code. That wasn't my background. So that that really didn't, you know, that wasn't the hook. But I loved the fact that it was international, that it had to do you know, you were talking to people overseas, you were, you know, moving, it led into me getting into working. My next job after, after JXI was working for a small freight forwarder based at Washington Dallas airport outside of DC. And that's when I, you know, really started to like the industry and like the fast pace and the challenges. And, you know, we were doing air freight for the department of state and, the diplomatic pouches that get sent between, you know, from D.C. out to the embassies overseas. And, and, and so that was really fun. And, and, and that's how I felt, you know, I totally fell into this career, just through an ad in the paper. So, so from, from D.C., I ended up moving to Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, got a job with C.H. Robinson. I was with C.H. about 14
0: years Maybe you could just tell for our listeners, C.H. Robinson is a major player in the transportation industry. They're one of the largest, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, interestingly, I think I joined C.H. in 98, I believe. Very much, you know, huge in truck brokerage, right? And probably still are to this day the, the largest truck brokerage company in North America. So, you know, going out there, helping customers find trucks to move, freight within North America from point A to point B, I was always on the international side. so, So CH now is very much a powerhouse in the international forwarding arena. When I started, that business was really just starting to get going within CH. And so I definitely helped grow it. Worked in Charleston, South Carolina for several years, did account management. Exports, imports, air freight, ocean, customs, and the license. I ended up getting my customs brokerage license. So really, for the 14 years I was with VH, it gave me the opportunity and exposure to pretty much every, every type of shipment out there. I don't think I've ever moved live animals, but I think
0: I've moved pretty much everything,
1: <laughs> everything
0: else. So, so then what led you to transplants from there?
1: So, during my career at CH, I was offered the position to be the general manager at the the Dallas-Fort Worth International Office. So, my family and I relocated from Charleston to Dallas, which I meet people in Dallas, and they're like, why? What? What? You're doing the reverse. Uh, <laughs> reverse. You, know, you should be going from, you know, hot to the coast, not the other way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was a promotion. I was excited to move up into a general manager manager role. So I moved out to Dallas in 2011 and took on the, the general manager role at CH for the DFW office and was there a couple of years. And then CH ended up acquiring Phoenix International, in I think fall of 2012, if I recall. And, you know, it just seemed like I'd had a a good time, a a good long career with, with CH, but I was ready for something different. And TransPlace was looking to grow their international department very much similar to what I had done at CH. So I, they reached out to me and after talking with us for several months we, we decided it was a good move so I, I moved over to Transplace as a a director role in
0: 2013 and never look
1: back right right and never look back no it's it's been great i've really enjoyed working for Transplace it's it's, it's neat because the corporate headquarters is here in in Frisco Texas and in, in the DFW area which is a is a different experience than working for a branch office which i had always done at so it's a, it's a bit of a different perspective being at the, the corporate headquarters and, and getting exposure with that sea level. It's, you know, it's been a ride. We've, we've grown a lot and continue to grow. And the company is, I think, a really good combination of technology and transportation. And, you know, I swear every time I read the JOC or American Shipper or Freightways or any of the, you know, the... The journals within the industry—they're constantly talking about you know that that intersection of how important technology is to the what the future looks like for logistics.
0: Yeah, well, and and you're more than just a, a digital freight brokerage, from what you've described. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I mean, we do things very uniquely. I think we're you know we're we're a small freight forwarder We're a small NVOCC. So so we don't. We can't compete with my old company, CH. We can't compete with the expediters. So we have to come up with very unique services and solutions for our customers. And, and you know, we've, we've been successful at that. I think international shipping is, as much as we, you know, sometimes my domestic counterparts will be like, what's the big deal? You know, it's just moving cargo. We do it all day long, every day in the U.S. Well, it, it is a bit different when you do it internationally. And I think it's really critical for customers. They have to have confidence that the, the company they're going to partner with has that, that operational expertise and know-how and commitment that, you know, from time to time, things do go wrong. And how do you, how you recover is really says, I think, a lot about just, your professionalism and your commitment to their business. And so exactly. we, we've really worked on that dedication and commitment to our customers. And I, I think it pays off. We, we have a lot of long-term customers and we continue to onboard new customers. And I, I think our, our dedication and, and focus on being a strategic partner to our customers is, is evident. And that, that's what helps us bring
0: on new business. Also, I mean, we really haven't talked about this, but right now with the current situation with COVID, there's got to be a lot of challenges for you.
1: It is, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's been a, you know, very, gosh, lots of ups and downs, right? Not only personally in our lives, but just seeing, you know, some of our customers have, have you know, really had to scale back and and have gone through furloughs. And that's, that's you know, it, it's it's kind of heartbreaking to, to see what this pandemic has done to to businesses throughout, throughout the community not you know not just my customers but you know when you think when you think about the ripple effects of you know shutting down the economy and how that impacts so many different items that are imported or exported and you know, what that does to their overall business, it's, it's pretty profound. And there really is no area that's not been impacted
0: by this, by this global pandemic. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so what does 2021 look like for TransPlace?
1: 2021 I think is is hopefully back to back to the pace that, that we were hoping to be on this year. You know, I think we certainly recognize that you know the budgets that we set at the end of 2019 are probably not going to be met in and I think that's across the board. I I'd, I'd be amazed of many companies. I mean, I guess there are companies such as you know, Walmart and Amazon and and Clorox and some of the others that are selling items that are just you know you can't find them on the shelves, but but for most businesses this is the year where we're probably going to misplan, and it, it's really we're spending an awful lot of energy determining how do we get back to where we were, and I have to say we're having a record sales year. I think our sales team is doing phenomenal, and and I think it speaks to our customers because they. They recognize, you know, in, in times like this, companies are, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at every dime and every, every penny and saying, how can we save money? And that solution and oftentimes is partnering with people that provide more visibility and more efficiency and can lead you in the right direction. And so we've been really successful in demonstrating to our
0: customers the success that, that we can provide to them in that respect. So it's interesting. So you're getting both sides of the coin because you're seeing the the companies that are, are being devastated by COVID, yet you're seeing the other businesses that are taking off or just you know continuing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you you look at the the automotive industry that certainly suffered. You look at the you know the hospitality industry that's, that's suffered tremendously. But then you know, Porox is a new customer for for Transplace and it's been Really neat and gratifying to see their business absolutely explode with with the demand for the products they make. Racket Benziger that makes Lysol products. I mean, yeah, we we have customers that that are benefiting and other customers that are struggling. And so again, you you support both
0: sides to to the best of your ability. Back to just one of the things I I do love to ask our guests is when you think about everything that you've been through who were the biggest influencers they might be mentors influencers and anybody in your life I mean obviously your parents
1: yeah yeah for sure my parents my brothers you know it's funny I, I always say to people I've learned probably equally as as much from good managers as from bad managers right so you know I had a terrific manager at CH. That was very much a mentor and believed in me and encouraged me to to continue to apply and go after jobs that I wasn't always certain I could do. But, you know, he knew I could do it. So so that was really instrumental. I've also worked for bosses that were not great and I learned from them not to treat people how they treated me. I honestly think everyone needs that, you know, you you have to learn from good and bad bosses because I'm a manager. I I manage, you know, a, a team of people and it's really critical. The only way I know how to learn how to be a good manager is through experience. And so the experiences of my lifetime have I think led me to being hopefully what what I hope is is a insightful, respectful, but also having faith in people to do their jobs and let them do their jobs and be there to support them when they need it. But ultimately hiring, you know, hiring the right team members that I trust and can let them fly and do what they need to do best.
0: Yeah. And, and how cool will it be Molly when people that you've mentored have said, gee, Molly, uh, Annie Bailey was my best mentor.
1: Yeah, I hope I have great relationships with people I've worked with. And I, to me, it, it really does come down to the golden rule. Treat others as you want treated. And if you, if you put it out there, it will come back. I really do believe that. And so I try to live by that rule, and I, I try to continue to encourage my team to treat their teams that same way. And I, I think I absolutely do feel that corporate culture and leadership has to come from the top down. It, it doesn't come from the bottom up. It has to come from the top down. And that goes through, I think, all parts of life. My children can't, I have to set the example for them. And it's the same in the work environment. And I think it's the same in our communities. And that's really critical.
0: Absolutely. It's a wonderful outlook. I wish more people thought that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, unfortunately, because I feel like I, I've got like 10 other questions I wanted to ask you, but we, we can do that separately. But we are at the end of the show, Molly. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your journey, your wonderful insights, and we wish you continued good things at TransPlace personally, professionally, everywhere.
1: Absolutely. No, I've really enjoyed this, and thank you for inviting me to participate. It's been great, and look forward to continuing to talk to you, Linda.
0: Great. And for our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about TransPlace, feel free to go to their website at www.transplace.com. We look forward to our next show. Stay tuned for some more great stories with amazing women. Thank you for joining the WAM Podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to WAMpodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.